0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest short podcast accompanying the launch of our hashtag Disruption 2020 Global Bank Review, which highlights some of the environmental, social, and governance factors impacting banks across the globe and the opportunities that they present. I'm Rebecca Pellman, a senior associate with Herbert Smith Freehills based in London, and I'm here with my colleagues Tim Stutt in Sydney and Leonie Timmers in Madrid. In this podcast, we're going to dig into some of the survey findings set out in our report. In particular, we'll also take a closer look at the current practices relating to ESG considerations within companies, banks, and institutional investors. To start with, Tim, should we recap on the survey findings?
1: Sure, Rebecca. So, starting with the headline figures, the vast majority of the 300 respondents agreed or strongly agreed that ESG-linked lending and investing was a significant area of opportunity for their bank. 55% agreed, 37% strongly agreed, making for only a small proportion of banks not looking to play in this particular area. We also asked the bankers about ESG risk analysis and what activities they do ESG analysis for. The results there were more surprising. Activities most likely to be subject to ESG risk assessments were commercial lending excluding projects and also project finance. But both of those were only circa 40% each. Activities even less likely to have ESG risk assessments were retail lending at 14%, government lending at 22%, product development ventures and incubators, 23%, and M&A activity at 25%. These findings were interesting, with less respondents doing ESG risk analyses than we might have otherwise expected. It's interesting to also pair that finding with some research that we did in our European offices earlier in the year, where we dug into blockers for better integration of ESG factors into debt funding, like sustainability-linked loans. The finding there was that some 58% of respondents were facing headwinds due to a lack of standardised approach on ESG, a lack of obvious ESG metrics, and or uncertainty about how it might work in their business. Potentially, we're seeing some of those issues flow through here to the diligence and the risk side of ESG as well. Lastly, with the survey, but probably most interesting from my perspective as a governance nerd, was that less than half, being 40% of respondent banks, had centralised sustainability teams with principal responsibility for ESG risk management. Actually, quite a lot of banks have ESG risk sitting in non-specialised group functions or the executive team or with the board and its committees.
0: That's interesting, Tim. Is that a surprise to you?
1: It is and it isn't. There were certainly more divergent practices than we were expecting on this. Historically, most companies of scale, like banks, have tended to have specialist sustainability and ESG teams. Their role might be broad, uh, encompassing, providing advice to the business, but also uh, and also uh, helping with consolidated disclosure and stakeholder engagement. But keeping tabs of ESG risk across the organization is also usually a, a part of that. It was interesting here to see that the majority of respondents either didn't have such teams or didn't perceive that those those teams had principal responsibility for ESG risks in their business. Looking forward, it sort of seems like specialist ESG teams may be a model likely to come under pressure as ESG impacts are being looked at more closely across the organisation. To take a step back, there's two obvious approaches. One is the specialist function, which acts as an expert advisor to the business, as I've sort of mentioned. The other one is integration of ESG specialists into particular businesses across the bank. There's definite pros and cons for each of these. A specialist function um, facilitates the team as a center of excellence. It it gives a view across the organization and it can also facilitate streamlined reporting um, to the executive team and to the board. But actually, there's also some real draws from integration as well. So integration of the ESG specialist means that they're closer to the business. And given the sprawl of most banks and the legacy systems and products that are used, there's a real advantage in that. Understanding both ESG and the relevant products and systems helps to identify emerging risks and facilitates better mitigation of those risks, and in some cases, pricing of them. Sometimes it means less budgetary constraints as well. Uh, If the ESG staff are at cost of delivering a product line, they can be better allocated.
2: So
0: what's your prediction then?
1: To me, the likely path forward seems like a mix. A centralised team focused on system-wide ESG risk and disclosure and then a smattering of ESG specialists within different business lines and functions. Understanding the business is key for identifying risk exposures but actually line of sight across the business is also helpful for managing those risks and and facilitating accurate disclosure. As lawyers a lot of the ESG type failings we see from a governance perspective had some kind of disconnect between sustainability silos, the business and the risk and legal functions. So closer integration seems like a sensible path forwards Particularly with the growth in ESG and green financial products, it's difficult to see how business units will deliver on those at scale without enhanced ESG capabilities. Leonie, I know you're closer to the financing side of things. What do you think from a product perspective?
2: Uh, Thanks. Well, you've already said it. I think there's not a one-size-fits-all process for ESG integration, and I think whether a centralised or decentralised approach works depends on quite a few factors. The first has to do with the size of complexity of the bank. So banks should ask themselves questions like, are we exposed to ESG risks in a few or in many business lines? In which sectors and geographies do we operate? And related to that, how complex are the ESG issues affecting the industries that we work with? The second factor has to do with the products and the services the bank offers. Are they a more traditional bank providing lending services or do they also do DCM and ECM work and take on advisory roles or perhaps even sustainability coordinator roles? Finally, I think it depends on the role that the bank wants to take in the financial transition Does it want to be at the forefront of ESG integration, or does it have a compliance mindset and focus purely on the must-haves? I think all of those factors can guide the right approach for each bank. Our survey findings um, and other recent studies on responsible banking practices identify that banks really struggle to embed sustainability frameworks in their corporate strategy and their, their policies and governance, I don't think that is necessarily due to them choosing either a central or decentralized approach, but more due to a lack of a clear division of tasks across the organization. And that's problematic because that's precisely what leads to criticism about greenwashing as um, stakeholders or the general public may feel that the statements made by the institution do not translate into the day-to-day running of their business. Some things that may help banks overcome this hurdle are firstly making sure that the overall ESG strategy is in line with the organisational purpose, is developed by a board-level committee together with people from the different business lines or sector groups, and is then worked into clear guidelines, training sessions for staff, minimum standards and mitigating measures, which includes all products, services and all geographies that the bank covers. Basically, I think each staff member needs to receive information about what their role is in this process. Another interesting way to achieve this, which has been adopted by some of the most ESG advanced banks, is for example establishing remuneration policies linked to ESG performance or a performance measurement framework for directors which considers their progress on sustainability objectives. Anyway, you mentioned the rise of environmentally responsible products like green loans and bonds Um, and I think it's it's clear that most banks now offer environmentally responsible products to their clients with the logical next step which is already developing being products that address socio-economic issues as well and I think I I agree with you that increasing the level of ESG knowledge within banks is more and more important due to the lack of established market standards for most of these products. Um, we can divide the main environmentally responsible products we see nowadays into two groups. On the one hand, we see the so-called green, social, blue or COVID-19 loans and bonds, where the use of proceeds of these loans or bonds is clearly allocated to a sustainable purpose. And then on the other hand, we have sustainability-linked loans or bonds, where the loan includes a pricing adjustment if the borrower achieves specified sustainable or ESG targets. Again, how to organise the teams dealing with these products depends a lot on the role of the bank, the policies and guidelines business units have to hand and the type of clients they work with. Looking at sustainability-linked loans, for example, The hardest part to set up these loans is determining the KPIs that determine the pricing adjustment. Where you have a borrower which is a large Western company, it is likely that the borrower itself has sufficient in-house knowledge to come up with a proposal for the KPIs. Or that the pricing depends, for example, on the ESG score of that borrower, which is determined by external sustainability rating agencies. In such cases, it may be perfectly possible for a sustainability team to be involved only in the second-line risk management stage in a review function. But on the other hand, where the borrower is an SME or a company in a geography where ESG is not as established as a concept, such borrower would need more handholding, And in that case, it may make more sense for the ESG expertise to be woven into the client-facing teams. And I think the same applies where Banks position themselves as green agents or sustainability coordinators and help borrowers structure the ESG components of their loans. I think in such case, a decentralised approach where the client-facing team includes ESG experts may make sense in terms of nurturing the ongoing client relationship.
1: So, Leonie, on centralization, what do you think? Do you think a mixed approach is, is the best way forward?
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, for some uh, of the ESG related lending products, it may make sense to have an ESG expert within each team. But if you think about reporting, it may make more sense for that to be done by a specialist sustainability team in the bank to ensure that there is overview and one single approach. Um, We also haven't really talked about the option of outsourcing certain tasks to external advisors. I think this works well um, as well, for example, for ESG training to staff or the modeling of ESG related risks and running scenario analyses um, or, for example, performing specialized ESG due diligence on new and ongoing transactions. Anyway, related issues come up on the investing side as well. So, Rebecca, what is your view from an investor perspective?
0: Thanks, Leonie. Well, we're also seeing a seismic shift in focus on ESG factors from the investor community with implications for ESG integration and disclosure. Digging into this shift in investor sentiment, the drivers include a combination of factors, including the palpable effects of climate change, pressure from activists, and progression in social norms in areas such as diversity, inclusion, and equality. Given that the beneficiaries of institutional investors are often large groups of citizens, these trends are driving many such investors to formalise the consideration of ESG factors in their internal guidelines, which form part of their duties to their beneficiaries. It's also worth noting that there is an increasing body of evidence which suggests that ESG criteria can be financially material and therefore the ESG integrated portfolios may be able to better provide risk-adjusted returns to investors. If, as some expect, the investment strategies with the most sophisticated integration of ESG risks and the companies with the strongest ESG characteristics do show themselves to have been most resilient through the COVID-19 period, we would expect a continuing and accelerating focus on ESG considerations in the recovery phase and beyond by asset owners and asset managers, with particular demand for greater corporate transparency and accountability. There is, of course, the wave of ESG-related regulation, which is emerging largely out of Europe, requiring asset owners and asset managers to integrate ESG risks into their investment decisions and provide detailed disclosures on the ESG credentials of their financial products and portfolios. The expectation here is that these disclosures will result in increased capital flows to asset managers with better ESG credentials, thereby creating a commercial driver to provide more and better ESG-focused products to attract these capital flows. So, taken together, these developments present an opportunity for asset owners and asset managers to adopt a clearly defined position on ESG and the role that those factors play in their investment decision-making processes. When doing so, they should, of course, remain mindful of their other legal and regulatory obligations, and that includes the duties owed by asset managers to their clients and, of course, the duties of pension trustees to their beneficiaries. I think it's also interesting to note that the pandemic is likely to alter the way in which financial risk is assessed. For instance, asset managers and asset owners will be delving more deeply into the resilience of their investments to external events. In particular, there's likely to be a greater focus on black swan risks and existential threats, such as those relating to climate change. Changes to risk management models or valuation metrics may be required, therefore, to ensure that such risks are adequately considered and priced into asset valuations.
2: That's really interesting. What impact do you think this is having on investor attitudes to to ESG integration as part of their investment processes?
0: Well, given these developments, it's perhaps not surprising that there is a growing push for the integration of ESG considerations into the investment practices of investors. There are different strategies that institutional investors can adopt when integrating ESG factors into investments. For instance, active ownership and engagement may be particularly relevant for pension funds and insurance companies due to the size of their portfolios and their long-term investment horizons. However, engagement may also be costly and therefore won't be as relevant for institutional investors with smaller volumes of assets under management. The incorporation of ESG factors in investment decisions tends to be more common in some asset classes, such as listed equities, fixed income, private equity and infrastructure. For other asset classes, however, such
2: as hedge funds, ESG
0: incorporation tends to be less common. And and
2: what's the barrier to ESG integration being more widespread in general?
0: Well, this probably won't come as a surprise, but the greatest barrier to ESG integration is the lack of high-quality data relating to corporate ESG performance. In general, there are major concerns regarding the lack of transparency and global standards for for data disclosure and analysis. Not all companies disclose information on their ESG policies and performance, and and where they do, it still remains difficult for investors to make like-for-like comparisons, The need for reliable, coherent, and comparable information is particularly important for institutional investors due to their fiduciary duties, and and many institutional investors have therefore voiced the need for universal standards for the disclosure of ESG-related data. Improving the availability, consistency, and quality of ESG information would help institutional investors to better understand how they can approach the integration of ESG factors. In in fact, in a recent study by State Street, over two-thirds of institutional investors stated that greater transparency in ESG reporting from companies would be the single most useful thing towards improving ESG integration. We know, of course, that the EU's taxonomy regulation will increase the focus on corporates, asset owners and asset managers providing certain forms of ESG disclosures relating to the activities, uh, relating to the nature of their activities and classifying their activities and returns in accordance with the taxonomy. For now, however, the lack of standardisation remains a major barrier to ESG integration.
2: OK, I mean, do you think that um, despite these challenges that you've you've mentioned, there is actually a real opportunity for banks and institutional investors to de- lead a m- fundamental shift in the finance industry and, and and maybe even the wider economy?
0: Absolutely. You know, a large number of banks and investors have already signed up to the UN Principles for Responsible Investment and the UN Principles for Responsible Banking, with the latter now representing more than a third of the global banking industry. In doing so, they've committed to aligning their organizations with ambitious targets that contribute to global and national sustainability goals. In addition, most banks and institutions have adopted voluntary reporting standards like the TCFD, the Global Reporting Initiative and SASB. And this is helping to foster transparency and accountability across the market how these commitments are implemented and integrated into corporate strategy, into governance and and policies varies. And um, as you said earlier, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to ESG integration. The full impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on these issues also remains to be seen. However, as things currently stand, the focus on ESG factors looks set to grow in importance for the banking sector due to this combination of regulatory pressures and stakeholder demands, which all of us have noted earlier. And, And banks in this context may well be called upon to play a key role in addressing the social and economic challenges that have emerged since the pandemic. We hope that this short podcast provided a useful overview of some of the ESG-related challenges and opportunities facing banks in this context. Thank you all very much for listening, and goodbye for now. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.